Chapter twenty eight of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter twenty eight. Abroad. I had thought that on my next meeting with Peter I should be shy and embarrassed, but as a matter of fact, he turned up when I wasn't expecting him, and I forgot all about it. Half an hour later, I remembered but it would have been absurd to have begun to feel shy then. There were a great many practical arrangements to engross our attention. Chloe and Joe had decided to take one more winter in Paris, and Chas was going with them to study at Colorossi's. If Joe had consulted her pocket, she would have let the studio. But then what would happen to the changeling and little John? Peter and I could not afford to take them with us, and it was finally settled that Gladeyes was to live rent-free at the hencoop and look after the two helpless ones, for whose board we were leaving behind as much money as we very well could just then. Edgar Murdoch, who all this time had stayed on the first floor of the house where Peter lodged in the attic, seemed unable to settle to anything though he talked perpetually of emigrating. When he heard of our plans he announced he would stay on in London for the winter, so as to see us all on our return from France. Also, he added, he could keep an eye on the family at the hencoop, as he did not consider Mrs. Gray should be left with no man to protect her if necessary. I'm afraid I could not help smiling a little, as I recalled the timid femininity of manner which Gladeyes, quite unconsciously and by sheer instinct, always adopted with any male thing. But I was glad of the suggestion, for I feared the consequences for Edgar if he were left with no anchorage. Joe and Chloe, escorted by the man-about, who really was a quite unworldly person, left town about a week before Peter and I, having settled our family, set off on our travels. It was a blustering kind of day with a hint of wine-pale sunshine that had died by the time the train reached Newhaven, and we hurried across the quay and got on board. For our sins the ship that day was a tiny French one, soon after taken off, to be knocked into scrap iron, or perhaps puffed gently up rivers, which was about all she was fit for. Outside the harbour a dark yellow sea raged, and the sky was roofed in with slate-grey clouds. My chiffon veil whipped the air viciously. We cast off, and Lirondelle shook her nose and plunged it into the rolling foam of the harbour bar. Peter and I were standing by the rail, and as she shook her whole length and reeled, I caught on to a steel rope and braced myself for the showers of spray that came sweeping over us like hail. A sailor shouted at us to go below, but I shook my head and yelled back in my best French that I preferred drowning on the deck to suffocating below it. He then assisted us to where a seat ran along the side of the after-deck house, on which a few miserable but staunch-hearted Britishers were huddled. Once we too were installed, some sailors proceeded to lash us all in with a rope, 
there for the next three or four hours we sat, Peter and I growing hungrier and hungrier, and the other passengers sagging forwards, their pale chins hung over the guarding rope. It was a splendid sea. I have seldom seen a finer. A stormy yellow, the heaving miles of it were scarred and blotched with livid patches of paler yellow foam. The only other colour, once the pallid green-topped cliffs had slipped away, was the steely grey of the sky. At every lurch to port that the ship gave we seemed to be wallowing down to a racing lather of foam, and our scuppers filled only to send the water filming over the narrow strip of deck at us as the ship rolled to starboard. We sat there like a row of little canutes, the baffled water never quite reaching our feet, but sent swishing back into the scuppers again at the last moment. After three hours of this kind of work, the aspect of sky and sea underwent a change. The waves fell somewhat and assumed a normal grey-green, and though we still rolled almost to the limit, it seemed possible to try and attain food. Accordingly, Peter and I wriggled out from under the rope, and by a series of calculated dashes succeeded in making the head of the companionway, and once on the lower deck it was comparatively easy to reach the saloon. But at the top of the stairs leading down into it I paused in dismay. True, there were inviting-looking white cloths on the table, but on the benches rows of human forms lay out along them, prostrate and dumb, with closed eyes and pale green faces. Heavens, the place is like a morgue, I exclaimed. A few of the pale green lids were raised, and their owners cast a glare of concentrated dislike at me, which deepened as I called to the waiter to bring us something to eat outside. Then Peter and I staggered towards, and were suddenly violently thrown on to, a seat and there we attacked the food the waiter brought us, which proved, to our disgust, to consist of biscuits dubbed Thin Oval Captain and soda water. It was dusk by the time we made our very belated arrival at Dieppe, and we were hustled through the customs and into the expectant train. I felt a shock of emotion that was almost physical as I set my foot on French soil again, not since father and I had roamed the world together had I been out of England. Not for three weary years, and I felt the old romantic tingling in my blood. As the train puffed slowly through the streets of Dieppe, I saw the tall old houses with their shutters folded back on their flat white faces, or closed to admit the gleams of tantalizing lamplight shining through the slats. I leant out of the carriage window, in spite of the dangereux de se pencher au dehors notice which adorned the ledge in brass characters and three languages. In the streets some fishwives stood to gaze at us, their hands on their full hips. One, young and slim, wore pince-nez that glimmered in the light from our carriage as we passed her, 
and looked oddly out of keeping with her white folded cap. So we creaked through Dieppe and then, gathering speed, roared out into the dark, sleeping country beyond. I sat back in my seat, but Peter stood by the open window with his arms on the ledge and gazed out, little as there was to see, for the young moon was cloud-hidden. He breathed deeply of the keen air and, like me, felt that it tasted gloriously French. Presently he turned and spoke above the rattle of the train. This is the sort of country that looks sleeping, he said. Do you know what I mean? As though it had turned over a little in its sleep, hunching its shoulder and drawing the coverlet up over it. Not like quite flat country. That's like a corpse laid out. He turned to the window again and remained staring out till we came to Rouen, whose myriad lights, pricking through the blue of the night, looked like a giant swarm of fireflies settled over the slope. I think after that we both slept a little, only awaking when our train steamed into the Gare Lazare some two or three hours late. I flung myself on Joe and Chloe, who were standing dejectedly on the damp, gloomy platform, gasping out, Feed us, women, feed us. Nothing but a thin oval captain stands between us and breakfast this morning. What I need, opined Peter's voice in its deepest drawl, is a square meal in a round stomach. Lead on. Where are you staying? I asked as we all went rattling over the Paris cobbles in a taxi. You might have deigned us a word since your departure. We're in the old apartment in the Rue d'Assas. We'll go straight there now and dump the luggage, and then sally forth in search of something to eat. We too have a hunger. How the memories of gay student days thronged on me as we went skidding along the wet boulevards and then at length down the familiar dingy Rue de Sa. In those old days father and I had a little appartement in the Rue Leopold Robert, but Joe and Chloe and another girl, since married, had all clung together in the Rue de Sa and father and I were round there most days to see them. Joe guessed whom I was thinking of and squeezed my hand, and just then, as the interior of the cab swam in a big tear, we drew up at the iron-studded door. The little guichet in it opened, and Madame Bignon herself, round, rubicund, and faithless as of yore, appeared at its dark mouth with the pale triangular face of Anatole, who acted both as porter and chambermaid, peering over her shoulder. V'la les enfants qui sont de retour, said Madame, pressing me to her black cloth chest. She was always prodigal of affection, as a set-off to the total lack of any attendance bestowed on us. We tramped in single file down the queer little underground passage, whose whitewashed walls always rubbed off on one's clothes, and whose roof, as one ascended the steps at the end, 
was liable to knock the unwary brow. And then we found ourselves once more in the familiar courtyard. It is an oblong yard, and all round it the house folds its window-pierced walls, so that only a narrow strip of sky is visible away at the top. The sun hardly ever penetrates to the yard, save for a few minutes when it is practically overhead. But the grey rain visits it, dancing up into the air again from the cobbles. Joe's and Chloe's rooms ran down one side of the house. They had no communicating doors and opened right out on to the yard, so that whatever the weather, one had to go out to pass from one room to the other. At the far end was the sitting-room, and to this we all went now. It struck rather chilly in spite of the wood-fire in the stove, for the floor was of uncarpeted stone. In front of the small paned window was a plain deal table. Two or three chairs to match were squeezed round it, and the rest of the room was taken up by a camp bed. On the bed, busily washing paint-brushes, which he was swirling round on a cake of hollowed yellow soap, sat Chaz. His head was bent over his task, and the lamplight fell on to his sleekly brushed hair. At the noise of our entrance he looked up and rammed the brushes into an earthenware jar. The soap he allowed to bound like a triumphant flea over the floor, while he himself leapt to meet us. He was looking, as usual, very well groomed in a pale grey suit, with a silvery bow-tie to match, a great contrast to Peter, who was wearing shocking old tweeds, and a felt hat like a kind of pointed pudding basin, very suggestive of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. "'We've had this bed put up for Peter,' said Joe. "'You share my room.' Chas lurks in great state up at the top of the house, where it's so light he always wakes first and comes and calls us, to whom no ray of anything brighter than a pale darkness ever penetrates. He makes awfully good coffee. Then he will have the pleasure of beholding my beautiful pajamas, said I. The peach bloomers being a little shabby, Glad-Eyes actually made me a new pair of a refined lilac with silken frogs, Chas declared he was thrilled to the bone at the prospect, and after a hasty wash we all set off to a restaurant. On our way we had to pass Colorossi's, and Joe paused and said something to Chas in an undertone of which I only caught the word skeleton. He replied, Not here. Madame at the Coq d'Or. Her grandpa. And we were going on again when Chloe exclaimed, There's a croquis on tonight at Colorossi's, and it shouldn't be over yet. Let's run down and see. It'll be like old times for Viv. We began to clatter down the stairs, Peter and I last, when a sudden thought struck me. It was, of course, nothing for us painters to see a girl unclothed. But if Peter had never done so, it would be a terrific revelation of beauty for him. I remembered the first time as a child that I had ever worked from the nude. 
I was so overcome by the beauty of it that I couldn't draw. It seemed sacrilege to try and reproduce that harmony of supple lines and pearly tints in crude paint. And now, since Peter had kissed me, I knew I didn't want him to see any girl unless he saw me. I wanted to be the one to give him that shock of keen impersonal joy. I put my hand on his arm. Don't come in, Peter, to please me. I'll explain after. Of course not, if you'd rather I didn't, said Peter simply. He went out to the front door again, and I followed the others in. How the old days came sweeping back on me as I saw the model, a dark-haired Egyptian-looking creature, lying elbow-propped and chin on hands, upon the semicircular green baize model throne that made the flesh tints seem so pink by contrast. There was not a face I knew among the crowd of students busy over their sketchbooks, but Chas, who had already been studying there a few weeks, nodded to several of them. As we were going out again, I heard a mysterious interchange of words, this time between him and a fat German student. "'And the skeleton?' said the latter. "'The grandpa to madame at the coke door. "'We're going there now,' replied Chas. "'The skeleton? Grandpa? "'This is very intriguing.' thought I to myself. End of chapter 28